Thank you, Bill. Good morning to everybody. It is great to be back together. Appreciate those who filled in for me while I was, my wife and I were gone last week. Appreciate Mark teaching the Sunday morning class and North preaching, and that's fantastic. And also uh, Matt Grimes teaching the Wednesday night class, and I heard he did a great job as well. Just so thankful to have men who are able and have the ability and are willing to step forward and, and fill in for, for me while I'm gone and to do so many other things in serving God and glorifying Him. I want us to, we finished our last time, I was, I was here a couple of weeks ago, we finished our series about the devil's worst day. I hope that really helped you. That helps me to stop and think about how as <clears throat> powerful as we might consider the devil to be with his abilities, and, but he's always, he always still has, he has restrictions placed upon him by God as to how far he can go. And it it's, helps me to realize he had a whole lot of bad days and still has a whole lot of bad days. And so I hope that's helped you in your faith and your faithfulness and your spiritual strength. I want us to look to the cross today. And I want us to look to the cross by way of considering some lessons. Now, when we think about Jesus dying on that cross, and a lot of people would say that's the focal point or the pivotal point of Christianity. And, and I think we can understand it that way. But at the same time, I've tried to emphasize the resurrection validates the cross because Jesus arose from that grave. And so everything that he came to accomplish by dying on that cross is validated by the fact that he rose victorious over death. So going to the cross, Christ going to the cross holds intense meaning for all of us, tremendous meaning. And that's really, really important. God sent him to that cross out of God's love for us. Let's never forget the central theme to John 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We could couple that with Romans 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus was offered by God literally as the perfect one time for all time sacrifice to bear the price, to pay the price, if you would, for the guilt of our sins. Our sins going all the way back to Adam and going all the way forward until Christ comes again in that final day of judgment. The Hebrews writer wrote in Hebrews 9 and verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Now we can remember that in the Old Testament scriptures that people had to offer continually sacrifices for their sins and also the high priest would offer continually year by year sacrifices for the sins of the people. Christ came as that one time for all time perfect sacrifice, paying the price again for the guilt of our sins. In fact, the apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, for he that is God made him that is Christ who knew no sin, he lived physically in this world without ever sinning. He lived that perfect and pure life as our example 
So God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, not to be sinful, but to be sin. In other words, to bear all of our sins of, for, from, for all humanity, for all time, to bear all of our sins upon his body as he died on that cross that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We could not pay that price for ourselves, the price of our guilt, the price for our sins, because how can a sinner pay a price to remove the guilt of his sins? We can't do that. We needed, we needed God to send his son, the perfect, the perfect savior to pay that price for us. And Christ dying on that cross reflects not only the love of God, but also the power of God and the wisdom of God. He knew exactly what to do. And he knew it from beginning, from before he ever created mankind. From the beginning, he already had that plan in mind. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In other words, those who don't believe or those who simply reject the Savior as having died for, the, for, for their sins. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, to us who believe in Jesus as the Savior, to us who are surrendering our lives to him in obedience, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the power of God. Verses 23 and 24 in that same chapter, but we preach Christ crucified, Paul wrote, to the Jews a stumbling block because they rejected the Savior. And to the Greeks, foolishness, because the idea of one coming back from the grave, rising from the dead, was foolishness to them. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, and how are we called? By the gospel message, the word of God. To those who are called, to those who understand, who believe and respond to the call, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we could spend a great deal of time, in fact, we could look at a whole series of studies that would go on and on, talking about the importance, the effectiveness, the blessing of Jesus dying on that cross. But I want us to look a little bit deeper, and I want us to consider some further lessons that we can learn, maybe we might say kind of on the periphery. Now, not focusing exclusively on what he accomplished for us in dying to pay the price for the guilt of our sins. But, but thinking about some of the, maybe kind of the peripheral lessons that we could learn from Christ going to that cross and dying on that cross. So let's think a little bit deeper. Let's learn some further lessons. Now, first, let's understand that Simon of Cyrene, and some of the texts will say, Simon the Cyrenian, that simply means Simon from Cyrene, that's where he lived. He bore Jesus's cross after Jesus collapsed under its weight, after having been beaten pretty much mercilessly through, those, through that scourging, he carried the cross for a period of time and then collapsed beneath it. And so the Roman soldiers pulled this man named Simon out of the crowd and compelled him to carry the cross of Christ to bear it the rest of the way. Luke chapter 13 verse 20 uh, chapter 23 and verse 26. Now as they led him away 
they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, in other words, coming from Cyrene, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. When Jesus collapsed under its weight, then they pulled this man out of it, out of the crowd to bear it the rest of the way. So think about this. Luke 9 and verse 23. What did Jesus say to them all? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, also Luke 14 and verse 27, Jesus said, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. So when we think about Simon of Cyrene, bearing the cross of Christ the rest of the way to that Golgotha hill when Jesus collapsed under its weight, we can take that as a lesson to remind us that we must carry our cross in service to him as faithful, dedicated, committed Christians. And that's a cross we must carry every day, all the way. I've told the story many times and, and I, it's true story. When I was preaching down in Louisiana in that particular small city, I was driving down one of the more main streets one day and the street up ahead was kind of blocked off because there was a procession going by and it was supposed to give a spiritual emphasis to Christ on the cross. And so here was a fella, I'm, I'm sure supposedly portraying Jesus, bearing that cross on his shoulders. And, and I looked and I noticed, and I, I think I, I spoke out pretty loudly to my wife sitting next to me. I said, the cross is on wheels. Do you think Jesus would have liked to have had wheels on his cross maybe? Well, see, we want to make things easier, don't we? I just thought that stuck with me all of these years. That fellow was bearing that cross, pulling it along on wheels. Jesus did not have wheels on his cross. He bore that weight on his shoulder, on his back, on his person. And Simon also bore that cross in the same way. And so that, that experience right there, that imagery should help us to, to remember that we need to take up our cross in service to him always. Now think about what they did with Jesus when they laid him down on that cross. We're talking about, when we think about execution today, some states have said in our country, no more capital punishment. We just think that's inhumane. That's cruel and unusual punishment. States that still practice capital punishment, whether you agree with it or not, they try to make it as easy upon the one who is being put to death as they can because they want to make it, they, they want to take away as much suffering on, on the part of that person as possible. Well, however you view that is, is, is you know, that, that just set that to the side in your mind. The execution that they performed upon Jesus was brutal. It was barbaric. We could probably say inhumane. Now, Jesus died on that cross that same day. From my reading, I've come to understand that, and, and that was because that was, for the Jewish people, that was the Passover coming the next day or that night. But 
it was a common practice for those Roman soldiers executing a person by, by crucifixion that they would take some measures to drag it out, make it go long so that the suffering of the man who is dying on that cross would be extended and his suffering would become even more and more intense. Well, thank God that Jesus dying on that cross was fulfilled and its purpose was fulfilled on a quicker basis, but it was, it was horrible, it was, it was inhumane. From all logical perspectives of humanity, I believe, but think what they did. Now, they stretched out his arms on that cross and they drove nails through his hands and through his feet to fasten him, literally fasten him to that, to that wooden cross. So think about that. But as we think about that, then a lesson we can get from his outstretched arms, stretched out, nailed to that cross, could remind us, in fact, it should remind us of his open arms as he invites us to come to him, our Savior, for forgiveness and salvation. The outstretched arms of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, come to me, all you. His arms are outstretched to all humanity. Now, he leaves the choice to come to him up to us individually, but he has his open arms to everybody. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Think about those outstretched arms. Think of this imagery here that goes along with that. In Matthew 23, verse, verse 37, as Jesus is issuing that lamentation over the city of Jerusalem, who he knew were rejecting him almost wholeheartedly. Although many would become Christians, most of them would reject him as the Savior. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to her. And they wanted to stone him at one particular point. And they were going to have him executed on the cross. He said, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Do you get that imagery of the hen, the mother hen, stretching out her wings and gathering the young chicks under her wings? Jesus' outstretched arms. We can also think about and learn from the criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. One was crucified on the right hand of Jesus, the other on the left hand of Jesus. And think about what we can learn from that particular one. In Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 32, there were also two others, criminals, criminals led with him to, put, to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, the one on the right hand, the other on the left hand, the other on the left. Well, the text goes on in verses 39 through 43, talking about how one of those criminals blasphemed Jesus, challenged him. The other criminal rebuked that one and he ended up with Christ in paradise that night. In paradise. Well, what do we learn from that? At judgment, 
The saved will be on his right and the lost on his left. And I'm gesturing from your perspective, your right, your left. Well, think about that. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, Jesus says, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. We don't want to be among the goats in case you're not getting that imagery. We want to be among the sheep, among his flock that he is calling to heaven with him for all of eternity on that final day of judgment. Well, let's look at another lesson we can gain from the cross. Jesus suffered a cruel death on that cross, as I've emphasized a few moments ago. And he suffered that cruel death for us. He suffered that cruel death, and that can remind us, that can remind us that we will all face physical death until the Lord comes again. But if we walk with God faithfully, we can look forward to eternal life with him. The Hebrews writer wrote in Hebrews 13 verses 5 and 6, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He died on that cross for us. And we're going to die physically. But if we're walking with the Lord, we will have eternal life spiritually with him in heaven forever. Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Think about God's love. As we emphasized a few moments ago, but, but in sending Jesus to that cross, think about again the na- outstretched arms nailed to that wooden cross. Think about all that the Roman soldiers did in, in, in advancing his death. Think about those mockers at the foot of the cross challenging him as to his claim and his identity as the Savior and the Son of God. But he did that for us. And, and here the Hebrews writer says, But if we're walking with God, what can man do to us? Man, even though we will face physical death, man cannot separate us from God. We go further in that eighth chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Oh, those soldiers, those Roman soldiers could put Jesus to death on that cross physically, but they could not separate him from the Father in heaven who raised him from that grave, from that tomb, who raised him victorious over death. Nobody and nothing can separate us from the love of God and from the promise that Jesus is coming to call us to be home with him in heaven. Well, let's look a little further. Another lesson. Jesus instructed John to take care of Mary, his, Jesus' physical mother. 
Think about that. We may not always get some lessons from that that maybe we could and should. His instruction to take to John, the apostle, one who is closer to him, it would seem, than most of the rest of the apostles. He told him to take his mother and care for her for the rest of her life. John chapter 19, beginning with verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and John was referring to himself in the third person there, the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. He took care of her as though he was her, his, as though she was her own, his, his own mother. He took care of her as though he was her own son. Now John, later writing by inspiration in 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16, he was guided by the Holy Spirit to teach this kind of love to all of us as faithful, dedicated Christians, followers of Jesus. The lesson we learn from that cross, from Jesus telling John, behold your mother. Jesus telling his mother, behold your son. 1 John chapter 3, beginning with verse 16, by this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, but does, how does the love of God abide in him? How does the love of God abide in a person who has that kind of, of exclusionary mindset that he's not going to help a brother or sister in Christ who is genuinely in need and cannot help themselves in that particular moment? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, just spoken words, but in deed and in truth. In other words, in action, in action. Have you thought about those soldiers, those Roman soldiers, casting lots for Jesus' garments? For Jesus' garments. Now again, critics of Jesus, critics of the cross, they would say, oh, that he manipulated those prophecies that appeared to be fulfilled in his life upon this earth. He was a fraud all the way. How in the world could Jesus... How could he manipulate those Roman soldiers casting lots for his garments, which was prophesied that would take place hundreds and hundreds of years before in Old Testament prophecy? No, genuine, absolutely the real deal. But those soldiers casting lots for Jesus' garments should remind us that material things of this world are temporary and perishable. Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots in specific and direct and exact fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Again, hundreds and hundreds of years before. Now, think about what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, though, as to material possessions. Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 19, he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, 
where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hmm. Those Roman soldiers casting lots for Jesus' garments. Incidental, except very important for fulfillment of prophecy. But what did they get? The one who finally won his garments. What did he have? Some pieces of rags. Now, I don't mean to be, you know, denigrating of people who have paid a great deal of money for the clothes that they wear on their back, but I'm, I'm, basically we're talking about rags, pieces of material. They don't really amount to anything as far as real eternal value is concerned. And we need to understand that, that the material blessings of this world are from God to bless us while we're here, but they're not going to be eternal. We're going to leave them behind. However much money we accumulate, however many valuable goods we accumulate, they're not going with us to eternity. We can learn that lesson from the cross. Pilate placed a plaque on the cross identifying Jesus as king of the Jews. John 19 and verse 19. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And this statement was written in Greek and Latin and Hebrew, all three of those. It should remind us, and here was a man who sought to release Jesus but I'm pretty certain Pilate never believed in Jesus as the son of God. But that title that he had written and placed on that cross, I assume nailed to that cross, probably above Jesus's head was very telling whether he realized it or not. Think about what we read in Revelation 19 and verse 16, describing Jesus from an eternal perspective. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, John wrote, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Pilate had that written on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Pilate needed to come to understand that Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a lesson for us to learn. Again, on the periphery from the cross. And then finally, let us never forget that Jesus' physical form, Jesus the man, was still fully divine even while on this earth. And he is God the Son. We see the scriptures refer to him as the son of God, but he is God the son, as is God the father and God the Holy Spirit, fully divine. Remember that when Pilate suggested to him, I have the power to release you. And, and what are you saying to me? And Jesus said you would have no power at all, except it was given to you from above. I could pray to my father and he would send legions of angels 
to deliver me out of your hands, to deliver me out of the hands of these people who want you to crucify me. But that's not what I'm here for. I came to die on that cross. Jesus going to that cross should impress upon us the importance of our submitting our will to God always throughout our lives. In Matthew 26 and verse 39, we see the scene or part of the scene in Gethsemane. And so he, that is Jesus, went a little farther. After nine of the apostles had stayed or perhaps probably eight at that time because Judas was probably not with them, they had stayed on the edge of the garden. He took Peter, James, and John a little farther into the garden, and then he left them at a particular point, and he went even farther in the garden to be alone to pray to the Father. And so he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew he was going to be facing physical, brutal, torturous death the next day on that cross. And so we prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. There's the humanity coming out. But the divinity comes through and the submission to God's will comes through in the next statement. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We look at what Paul wrote along this line in Philippians 2 and verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he, that is Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so we should have impressed upon our minds the importance of our submitting to the will of God in our lives every second of every day. Jesus truly is the author of salvation to all who will come to him in obedience and surrender ourselves. The Hebrews writer wrote in Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. That was, I believe, for our, for our learning. He did not need to learn obedience for himself. He's God the Son. He knew what he came to this earth for. He knew what his identity was. He and is still. He knew what he was ultimately going to end up on, and that's the cross, dying for us. But he learned obedience. We need to learn that lesson of being obedient, submitting to the will of God in the way that we live our lives, living by his instructions and teachings and commandments. And having been perfected, he became the author or source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You might think of some other lessons that we could learn from the cross, but these are many that probably most of us don't think about. If at all, not all that much, and probably not all of these at all. Many lessons to be learned from the cross of Christ that go beyond just the basic fundamental lesson that he died for us to pay the price that we could not pay because of our sins. Many other lessons. What he did for us in going to that cross should stand out in our minds every day of our life. The way we live our lives, however, should demonstrate that his death on that cross 
has truly changed our lives. We need to not just look at it in awe and exclamation, his death on that cross, but the people all around us should see how our realization of what he did for us on that cross has changed my life. I'm living for him. If you have not yet come to him in surrender, not just praising him in word, but surrendering your life to him in repentance of your sins, confessing your faith openly in him as God's son and your savior, and being baptized for the remission of your sins as he was buried in that tomb, buried in the waters with him. So the blood that he shed on that cross for you can cleanse you, wipe you clean of all of the guilt of all of your sins, and you can be transformed spiritually, made new, born again. If you've not done all of that, we encourage you to take that step this morning or get with us so we can study with you to help you understand this is exactly what God sent his son to die on that cross to open the door for you to be able to take part in. If you need the prayers of the church, for whatever reason, we would love to pray with you and for you. If you need to study further, we'll make that happen if you'll ask us and let us study with you or make that way for you to study on your own. Lessons from the cross, lessons to learn, lessons to be put into practice in our personal lives. If you need to come, come right now as we stand together and sing.